Welcome, Dave Smith, to the Flowering Lotus Meditation Podcast. We wanted to hang out with you a little bit and talk to you about our upcoming class we have going with you, which is July 22nd. Um, And so welcome and just wanted to see how you're doing today. Good, good. Actually, today is my 20 year sobriety anniversary. Wow. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So it's a interesting time to, I almost don't believe I'm like 20 years, no way. You know, it's a long time. Yeah. Well, congratulations. And I feel like you've helped people so much in that space since that 20 year um, point. So do you want to talk a little bit about where you found, how you found practice and um, possibly how that has impacted your sobriety? Yeah, sure. I, uh, I, you know, as, as is often the case, uh, the story is quite roundabout. Um, you know, I, I was practiced, I, I'd found practice, oh God, about 10 years before I even got sober. So uh, I grew up down the street from Daniel Goleman, the emotional intelligence writer, and um, was introduced to IMS, Insight Meditation Society, and uh, people like Joseph Goldstein and Steve Armstrong and Stephen Smith. So I, I kind of knew about these guys because they were my my friends' dad's friends, and I, you know, none of my, you know, I in, in growing up, kind of blue collar construction uh, life that I lived in, I I'd never met anybody up till then. None of my friends' parents were like that. They were just sort of boring people who, you know, were like, you know, 80s working mentality, John Hughes kind of parents. So um, because I had so much trauma, uh, I sense that or I suspect that there, uh, uh, some of the people that I knew, my friends, mom and dad, they kind of maybe knew that something wasn't quite right with me. So I got introduced to, I mean, I started sitting 10 day Vipassana retreats in 93 when I was only, you know, I was 18. And the funny thing was, I was, you know, obviously in the early 90s, there was not, this stuff has gone bonkers. Like in 93, nobody knew anything about any of this stuff. So I was definitely by far the youngest person on sitting on retreat. Um, and then uh, funnily enough, I was sitting a retreat, a seven day retreat last week at Vallecitos in New Mexico. And I was still the youngest person on the goddamn retreat. You know, it's like I've been the youngest person on the retreat for 30 years. You know, now I teach retreats. So the whole thing is kind of funny. Um, and then, you know, then I got sober in 2003 and um, I sat the three month retreat at IMS uh, with 60 days sobriety, which I don't recommend people do. Um, and so I, you know, and so I kind of weave these two worlds. I don't really at this point, we can talk as much about it as you want to. I'm not really that interested in in the whole recovery thing anymore um i did it for so long i was part of so many different things and i actually am more interested in from a clinical point of view um you know i've I've been a member of a 12-step program for 20 years and find them to be valuable and helpful and don't have anything bad to say about that world um very disappointed about the status of the buddhist recovery world i think that that really um we can talk about that a little bit if you like but i think that that um has not really ripened in a way that a lot of us thought it was going to. Um, and then I'll, then what I find now a lot of days is that people that I work with, a lot of people will go, and I have many students, and I, I, I know tons of people who kind of got sober. You know, maybe they got a year under their belt or just a little bit of time, and then they start working with me or they start doing Dharma practice. And they're like, can I just do Dharma? Like, why do I have to? do recovery, Buddhist recovery, Dharma recovery, whatever it is. Can I just have a Dharma practice and will that suffice? Uh, And my general answer was like, well, let's see. Uh, But I find that it does for most people. Um, And also, you know, it's also clear, like Buddhist recovery is a bit of a redundant term because, you know, or Dharma recovery, let's just use that word. Dharma recovery is no different than regular Dharma practice. So, you know, it's not like a Buddhist perspective on recovery. It's just Buddhism. So the, the recovery part of it does make it a little bit clunky. The only thing that I think stands out is that it's Buddhism for, and me and my wife talked about this because she's been in recovery a long time. Um, it's really just Buddhism for people in recovery. Right. It's really a Dharma affinity group mm-hmm. is really what it is. And the one thing that I, that I really don't like um is that a lot of 
Dharma, Buddhist recovery circle communities, it turns into a place where they just kind of bash AA and different 12 step modalities. Uh, and I think that that's very destructive. Mm -hmm. I think too, though, some people who enter recovery, when they start to go to AA, and they just hear the word God, they may yeah. have like some religious trauma or like some sort of, you know, growing yeah. up around Christianity. And so then it, you know, helps them to see it the same sort of teachings, but from a different perspective, maybe. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. It, that is often the case. I've certainly ran into those people, but that's a very small percentage. Most people just don't like the word God. And it's mm -hmm. like, just, you need to get over that shit. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, even, even the 12 step says that, you know, God, as you understand him. And if you understand that there is no God, which is my understanding, then, you know, so uh, in the person I th that I give the most credit to, I think who has done the best job by far is Kevin Griffin. Mm -hmm. And that would be his blending of Buddhism and the 12 steps, I think, um, has been the most successful perspective on that. But you're right, it's, it, it's a, it's a, it's a messy world uh, with people who are really, you know, hurting in many, many different ways. So I, I'm, I'm a huge supporter of it. Um, I I just find that um yeah it, it's a lot of complications and a lot of messiness that seems to um you know be going through some serious growth spurts perhaps right right um so tell me a little bit about your retreat I listened to your podcast talking about that you finally went on retreat so you yeah. hadn't gone on retreat for a little while yeah yeah no, it was it? it was great you know I haven't I I don't rec I don't I generally think that you should, if you're if you're a dedicated practitioner, uh, my general assessment for people is if you know try to sit five days a week for thirty minutes and try to get on at least one multi-day silent retreat a year. You know, preferably a week. If you can do two, that's even better. But I think a week a year on retreats about the minimal. Um, and you know, and I will I will uh, blame COVID for much of this. There was a three-year period of time where nobody could go on retreat. Um, and so I, I probably could have, should have gone last summer, but I, I didn't. And I did, I just went to a place called Viacitos, which is a, an insight center in Northern New Mexico that's run by uh, one of the founding teachers, Aaron Treat, who's a friend of mine, a great, really great Dharma teacher. Um, and I sat with a teacher named Mark Coleman who does these retreats called Awake in the Wild. So the whole retreat was outside in the woods you know, getting back to kind of what the Buddha was doing. The Buddha was, you know, not in a building. He was, you know, him and his early followers, they were, they were sitting in the forest, you know, Buddha, the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, we, we, we spent seven days outside walking, meandering, sitting, practicing a kind of a more of an open awareness practice, uh, kind of, I would say probably in the vein of Saidao Tejaniya's natural awareness practice. And, um, Oh man, it was so fabulous. It was so inspiring. It was so great. It was so great to not have to deal with my phone or like, uh, you know, it was just, uh, so I feel very rejuvenated and really, um, really fresh and inspired. I'm really, uh, and, and probably might sit that same retreat again next year. Open awareness out in the open. Exactly. <laughs> well, um, Thank you for agreeing to do a, a course with us. It'll be a one day, um, just half day course on the Four Noble Truths and mindfulness. Sure. And, um, you know, I don't know if you're aware, but Flowering Lotus, we travel around and do kind of what I would call pop up retreats. So we don't have. Yes, I've heard. I know that. Andrew Chapman just did one for you guys. Yeah, Andrew, Andrew and Mikey were with us last weekend. We had about 35 people and That's from great. five states. So that was pretty awesome. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, in that same way that we really want to allow there to be accessibility to the teachings and meet people where they are, um, tell us a little bit about what you're planning on teaching about within that you know, framework of the Four Noble Truths and mindfulness. What yeah, can people well, expect? Yeah, what a can of worms, right? Uh, yeah, and I've been teaching this class for a while, and let, let me just think about where to start because it's, these are these are two of the most massive ideas in Buddhist thought. So you have you have mindfulness, which is which is you know uh, kind of the OG Buddhist meditation. It, it's what the Buddha taught. It's within the Satipatthana Sutta. It's probably his most profound. I think his most profound. Um, 
discovery and his most profound gift to humanity is the way that he he understood developed and and really offers the teachings on mindfulness that's just in every buddhist tradition um is you know would agree on this this is sort of this is sort of the heart of buddhist meditation uh, and on the other side of that the probably most famous most well-known um uh, and i would say actually quite controversial teaching uh, is the teachings of the Four Noble Truths, which is which is actually understood to be his first teaching, uh, which actually we can talk about this a little bit, but 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 we know from an academic survey of the early Pali Canon, uh, definitely not his first teaching. In fact, he probably didn't develop the Four Noble Truths till maybe close to halfway through his teaching career. Wow, I didn't know. Um, so, no, nobody knows that. That's sort of the funny thing about it. So. Um, I think the the four noble truths are not um, they're not a description of reality and sort of how reality works. They're thought of. Um, they're a prescription. They're actually a they're 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 four tasks. They're four injunctions. Uh, they're actually mindfulness practices that we can. Uh, that we can recognize, that we can adhere to, that we can that we can see really, really clearly. Um, and when you bring mindfulness and the Four Noble Truths together as an integrated practice, you get something a lot more useful, a lot more pragmatic than what 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 sort of happens is the Four Noble Truths become sort of the doctrine in which Buddhists believe in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and also too in the original text, the word noble truth. Uh, was not there. That's a, that was a later addition. And, and I don't know about where, where you stand on this, but I, for me, the word noble truth reeks of religion. Right. Yeah. You know, the noble truth. And also you see noble truth with capital N, capital T. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're, they're privileged. They're, they're meant to stand out. Um, and, uh, you know, there's no capital letters in, in Pali. There's no capital letters in Pali, Sanskrit, Tibetan, or Chinese. Any of the Asian Buddhist languages, they don't have that way in which in English we privilege a word by capitalizing it. So mm -hmm. you know that that was a later addition. Um, and I think the biggest problem with the Four Noble Truths and, and the biggest problem I have with them and the majority of the work that I do now in the area that I'm moving into, primarily in, inspired by teacher Stephen Batchelor, who I've been working with for about 10 years, is that, um, you know, the Four Noble Truths is, you know, uh, there is suffering, there is a cause of suffering, there is the end of suffering, and then there is the path that leads to the end of suffering. You will see the Four Noble Truths delivered in that format in probably 99% of books on Buddhism. Now, if you look at the original text, if you look at the way they're talked about in the Pali Canon, you see a completely different rendition. You see it delivered in a much different way. The, the one that sticks out like a sore thumb is, is the way I just presented them, the way that Buddhism presented them. If you notice the word suffering is listed in all four. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, the word suffering, which we know comes from this Pali word dukkha, a dukkha, a word that's probably impossible to translate. Suffering, I guess, good enough. We're stuck with it anyway, so we might as well just deal with it. Um, uh, you know, the, the the way that it's originally delivered is, is the... Uh, is that first of all, there is no end of dukkha. We're not. We're not going to get to the end of dukkha. We're actually trying to embrace dukkha. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, it's it's described. He describes what dukkha is. He says dukkha is birth, old age, sickness, and death. I don't see how we're going to get to the end of that. Right. Uh, he says that dukkha is is about uh, uh, when you don't get what you want. That's dukkha. I don't see how that's going to stop happening. Mm -hmm. When things that you don't want to happen happen. When you lose things that you care about people, places, animals, jobs, relationships, money. Uh, I don't see that ever stopping. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that what happens is now we get into, um, not to get too technical, but I think one of the greatest kind of crimes, if I, if I can use that word, or one of the greatest missteps in Buddhist thought was when they translated the second noble truth as the cause of dukkha is craving. Mm -hmm. which which no which is kind of the standard thing you right. know for me to, i it almost seems even a bit arrogant for me to say that they got that wrong because that's sort of you know that that is buddhist 101 you know craving is the cause of dukkha well that's not what the text says nor does it say close to it so this word samudaya which is the word that gets translated means to us means something is arising uh and so 
cause or sometimes it's origin. So Samudia got translated as cause or origin, which is actually a, a, not just a slightly off translation, but a completely incorrect translation. In fact, there are other words in Pali for cause. So the Buddha could have easily used a whole range of other words if he wanted to do that. So, you know, um, it's basically, it's not that the craving or the tanha is causing the dukkha. It's that the craving and the tanha is arising out of it. Mm. Right. Wanting so, it to be different. Wanting it to be different. So, so you know, dukkha doesn't really have a cause. Dukkha is just sort of the existential dilemma of the human experience. Mm-hmm. You know, and the other thing that's interesting too is, of course, suffering in the English language is, is a word that's very pejorative. Uh, nobody wants to suffer. Like right. suffering is like the worst thing ever, right? Right. Uh, so, um, but when you look at dukkha, the Buddha doesn't actually speak of dukkha in a pejorative tone. He doesn't speak of it as being bad or wrong. He doesn't have the negativity that 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 we do in English or that even the the Buddhist world. I actually think Buddhism has declared a war on dukkha. Mm. Um, which has been, which has been, I think, really a bad move. Um, so he just talks about it as like, yeah, dukkha is like part of this world. He even says the five aggregates are, are dukkha. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're really trying to embrace that rather than trying to um, put an end to that. Now, embracing something and putting the end to something are very, very, very different, maybe even opposite positions. Um, and so even trying to end dukkha, to me, one of the other things that makes that problem, A, is that that's completely, I think, unrealistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and second of all, I think there's a lot of aversion built into that idea. Dukkha is bad and wrong, and I need to be rid of it. And one of the, one of the reasons why I, I harp on this so much is not because I don't care really at all about all this academic stuff I'm pointing to. I mean, you know, I think it's interesting and valuable, but the, 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 re- the real reason why I, I kind of get on my soapbox about this is that um, I spent years of my life, 10, 15 years of my life, really believing, taking the text for face value and really thinking that uh, I could put an end to Dukkha. And in and, 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 and my inability to do so, I felt like I was a bad meditator. I felt like I was kind of maybe even stupid. Uh, I, I actually picked up a lot of other side effects, um, you know, kind of denying myself certain aspects of my desire system, living in denial, uh, living in, in kind of creating versions of myself. Um, and also when you start teaching this stuff, the, the thing that really made me wake up to, it, I was like, I don't know. I was like, I don't, I can't, I don't believe this anymore. Like, I can't teach this. I don't believe that actually i never really believe the whole getting end of end of the whole getting rid of suffering business always never landed really right with me i mean it's a very attractive idea let's just be honest right it looks really good on the flyer mm-hmm. you know uh <laughs> but i always i i never sat really well with me and then of course when steven started doing his work and other academics when when, when i started to wake up to the fact of actually no they got that that part wrong um that really kind of, I was like, oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> now, that I, now that I know that suffering's here to stay, I can relax. Right, right. So I feel like to me, there's like this avoidance of accepting suffering as natural, you know? And I really, I, I appreciate just this conversation because it's waking me up to that um, aspect of things. Because like you said, it is just seemingly assumed and understood within the buddhist community that it was the first way you described it as- right which also i and i know even sitting here I, I can't even feel it in my system like it definitely comes across as like kind of a radical arrogance like who am i dave smith it's like you know to say that buddhism got the formula it's such an arrogant kind of statement to make but it's you know a the buddha said you know and i and this, i also rest on this and, and maybe maybe for some people it is i don't know it's just my experience you know but you know the buddha said come and see for yourself a he right. And I've come and seen for myself, and I can certainly tell you in in 30 years of practice uh, and also being a specialist in addiction, and I think that we can talk about this if you want, the second noble truth is all about addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I've come to see from my own experience that Duke is here to stay. And I actually am a much happier person uh, now that I've shifted my practice to an embracing of Dukkha and seeing the Four Noble Truths as four tasks to perform, I'm just much happier. Uh, I feel like I teach better. Um, I feel whole, whole much better about the whole damn project. So, um, you know, and a lot of people, I think, 
I think are waking up to this, but it is it is kind of a slippery uh, thing to say. Right, right. So in that same vein, as far as mindfulness, do you feel like the common um, definition of mindfulness is the same or do you feel like it's different? What do you mean? That mindfulness is, you know, accepting things for as they as they are without judgment. I mean, does that ring true for you? Not so much. I think mindfulness is um, it's a it's a clunky term. You know, it comes from this Pali word sati, uh, which actually literally means to remember. Now, how they went from mem- remembering to mindfulness, it's a and we're stuck with it. We're not going to tr- convince anybody to retranslate the word mindfulness. It's not terrible, but I think that. Um, it's very difficult to define. It would be like me asking you to define the word art. What mm-hmm. is art? Yeah. You know, just give me a quick definition of the word art or even love. What is love? Uh, it's one of those words. It's, right. it, 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 it's, it's such a huge concept that to try to, to, try to even break it down in, in one or two sentences, mindfulness probably needs at least a paragraph. So uh, the other thing people don't know about mindfulness oftentimes when you look at the Pali text is that, um, and this is very clearly outlined, is that there's different kinds of mindfulness on different occasions for different purposes. So really we would say that mindfulness is an innate uh, and trainable mode of cognition that human beings, just all of us have access to. It's not uniquely Buddhist at all. Mm-hmm. This is why secular mindfulness, I think, has blown up. You know, it's not like, you know, it's not like the Buddhists own mindfulness and we invented it. The Buddha woke, what he did is he woke up to his own mind and realized that he he could actually watch his own mind with his mind, which is kind of what mindfulness is. It's the ability to observe the inner contents of your mind, the outer contents of your mind, and the interplay between those two, Mm -hmm. which, you know, kind of amazing. And then, uh, so it's really kind of a mode of cognition that has different kinds of um, different kinds of, of functions on different occasions for different purposes. It's very, very dynamic. So to try to pin it down to say mindfulness is this. Right. Mindfulness might look like this in one moment, mm-hmm. and it might look like something else in a different moment. So it, I think it's a very dynamic uh, experience. And, and one of the things that we're doing, we can talk about this a bit too, if you like, uh, we do have a program that I developed with Stephen Bathler called Mindfulness Based Ethical Living, which is um, using these ideas, using four tasks and using mindfulness. Uh, and so what we do is we we talk about, the, we kind of break down, of course, who doesn't love a list of four, <laughs> that there, there's four kinds of mindfulness that correlate to each truth, or we could say task would be the word I would prefer. Mm-hmm. So the first one is mindfulness of an existential nature, which is all about dukkha. Like you were born, You've gotten older, you're, you know you're gonna die. Mm-hmm. How do we deal as human beings, knowing that we're, our life is going to end, knowing that we live in a finite world, knowing that everything we care about we're going to lose, uh, and, and actually dealing with the darkness and the kind of scariness of, of, of the existential dilemma that we are in, uh, mindfulness really, uh, we, we need to, there's a philosophical almost nature to that of like, well, if everything I just said is true, then what is it that I want to do with this life? Do I want to just, and this is where it really becomes countercultural. You know, do I just want to go to the right school, get a job, meet the right person, live in the right neighborhood, get the right job. And basically the general kind of American way that we deal with the existential dilemma is life is about getting what I want and avoiding what I don't want and trying to make enough of money and trying to navigate the secular contemporary world, which is a very scary and untrusting and, uh, you know, am I going to play? Am I going to do I want to just play by that game, uh, which, mo- which most people do and have found it to be very unfruitful? Or do I want to do something else? And then that something else usually puts us in some kind of an, ex- an existential dilemma of like, well, what is that? And how do I do that? And I still actually have to I want to have a decent car and I want to live in a house and I want to have money and I want to be able to provide for myself. So, you, you, you know, you have to deal with the world. Um, and so that, that that's a whole, we could talk about that for hours. That's the right. whole thing. That's just the first one. The second aspect of mindfulness that we talk about, I'll talk about this in the, the half day. Mm-hmm. It, 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 and this is about the second truth or the second task it's, uh, or the second effort. All these lists line up, ironically, is that how do we overcome 
these destructive forces in the mind? How do we overcome clinging and craving and all of that second noble truth territory? That's mm -hmm. a mindfulness that's very therapeutic. And that's really what secular mindfulness or MBSR is. It's a therapeutic mindfulness that says, right. how can I recognize the destructive tendencies of my own mind, which we all have, greed, hatred, mm -hmm. confusion, the hindrances. There's, there's a whole sophisticated, precise taxonomy of terminology in Buddhist literature that talks about the things in the mind we should be free from. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's, that's across the board, you know, there's lists upon lists of those things. And so we want to, we want to be able to free, be able to fr be free from those things. And that's, that's a therapeutic uh, way of looking at it. The third task well, was about Nibbana or Niroda is being free from being, what does it mean to be free from that? Um, that's a mindfulness that's a very, of a contemplative nature, being able to practice non-reactivity, being in the experience of Nibbana, the passing away of the overcoming of the craving of the grasping of the fueling, uh, to be in a mind that's balanced, at ease, that's spacious, that's very existential. I'm not sorry, existential, very contemplative. Uh, and then the fourth kind of mindfulness, it would be ethical mindfulness, which ironically enough, I wrote a ebook about 10 years ago called Ethical Mindfulness. And I remember when, uh, when I wrote the book, I got uh, I, I taught, was teaching at an addictions conference, and I did a kind of uh, a presentation on Buddhist psychology and addiction. And somebody came up to me after that and said, we'd love to do a book with you. And I said, well, I want to do a book on ethical mindfulness. And I kind of wrote some proposals. There was some back and forth. They didn't think the probably they didn't think either the title was good enough or the book was good enough. They didn't want it to they didn't want to invest the money for it to be a print book. So it ended up being downgraded into an ebook. Um, so I have an ebook out there called Ethical Mindfulness. You can get it anywhere okay. for like two bucks. Uh, but that was so the fourth, the, which is the cultivation of the Eightfold Path, which is how we live in the world. How do I engage in the world? How do I bring mindfulness to money, to relationships, to social issues, to racism, to to all of those things? That's a mindfulness that's ethical. Um, and so when you when you know when you kind of start thinking about everything I just said, all of a sudden mindfulness starts to become whoa. whoa you know, we're talking about a lot of different things here. We're not just talking about paying attention on purpose in the present moment. Right. So what that program that you're talking about, when are you doing that? And what's, how do people get information about that? Um, I can give you a link if you want. Okay. Uh, it's open now. It doesn't start for a while. Their registration just opened and people are actually signing up, which is great. But it starts in January, 2024. Nice. Uh, it's, it's an eight month program. Uh, it's online and in person. Okay, uh, so great. it starts in January, ends in September. Mm -hmm. There's two seven-day in-person retreats, one in March and one in September. So the program will end at the second retreat. Nice. Um, and there's an, so there's two retreats. There's also an online learning library, which will kind of go through a lot of the stuff I've mentioned. Um, and there'll also be monthly teaching sessions that I'll be conducting. Stephen Batchel will be in the program. He'll only be on Zoom. I just want to make sure I'm clear about that. He's not <laughs> going to fly over. He lives in France. Yeah. He's going to be doing some of the modules. He'll be doing some Zoom teaching. Um, and uh, it, it's a pretty small program. I think the, the program is limited to 40 people. Yeah. Um, but what it is, is it's a kind of uh, a merger of um, trying to find, dare I say, a middle way. Mm -hmm between early Buddhist thought and uh, secular mindfulness and trying to bring bring these ideas together so that way um, we're getting the best of the both worlds. So a lot of the emphasis, a lot of the teachings, a lot of the philosophy, a lot of the ethics, a lot of the psychology comes from the Pali literature um, and then mindfulness uh, in, in its multiple ways that it's being adapted and used now, some of it from a Buddhist context, Satipatthana, some of it, the work of John Kabat-Zinn or MBCT. Mindfulness, as you know, is a sort of everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, and we, and I think that we've learned a lot in the last you know 2,500 years, especially the way that we look at neuroscience and cognitive science and different therapies, trauma therapies. And uh, we've made so many advancements in Western thought that to not incorporate the advancements that we've made into a contemplative practice like mindfulness, it just doesn't make sense to not do that. It seems like mm -hmm. that's kind of the best of both worlds. So that's, we're trying to dance and we're trying to balance the line between those two. It sounds really great. So um, uh, send me the link and I'll include it in this, the show notes, as they say. That's the show notes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so what about, I do did also see that you're doing a 10-day uh, mentorship uh, retreat. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? 
That's actually it's, it's actually seven days, but that's okay. Oh, seven days. Um, that one, you know, there's only a couple spaces available. That mm-hmm. one basically was was it was a program that I developed. I have a mentoring program, and really, it was really meant to just be invitational only to people in the mentoring program. Okay. But I knew I knew I wouldn't get enough because the, the retreat center has a 25 person minimum. Mm-hmm. So I knew I was going to be pushed because we you know i knew it was going to be tight so right. now we have about a month away i've opened it up to people who want to um they can email me if they or if they want right. um but yeah that's in big bear california that's seven days sunday to sunday august 13th through the 20th okay. so we, i think there's only like three or four spots left if people want to jump on it let me know yeah well and then for the um half day that you're doing with us we're starting at eight a.m. um central time and then going which to is 7 a.m. for me yeah 7 a.m. for you <laughs> yeah, yeah. um and we'll go till noon will we be um doing any practices like meditating with you during that time? totally yeah so 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 this is good actually because what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at uh so so in the Theravada Satipatthana which is the teachings on mindfulness um in their version of it, in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the mindfulness of dhammas, uh, the last, there's five categories of practice. The last one is Four Noble Truths. So the Four Noble Truths is in the teachings on mindfulness. Um, so that gives me kind of a, a way of saying, okay, this is this is part of the system. It's not something that I'm making up or adding. Um, and so uh, we will be going through what I call the, um, there's lots of list of fours, as I'm sure you've gathered. Uh, and, and so there's the four foundations of mindfulness. There's the four noble truths. There's the four great efforts. There's the four Brahma Viharas. There's the fours upon fours upon fours. Now, the interesting thing is, um, if you take those lists and you turn them the other way, so say you take the first foundation of mindfulness, you take the body, you take the first noble truth, dukkha. You take the first great effort, prevent destructive forces of the mind. If you turn the list the other way and pull from the first one, you get a whole nother set of lists, actually. Mm. Uh, and it's a bit spooky, actually. When you do it, when you do this little trick, you get a, a different set of lists that's very pragmatic. Um, and so you understand that the, the, the first foundation of mindfulness is about the first noble truth. It's about dukkha. It's about embracing the body. Mm-hmm. It's about embracing the existential. I'm in a body. I'm a person in a body living in a world. And so what we'll do is I'll, I will um, be integrating all these four lists for people. So there'll be a, there'll be a teaching on uh, an overarching teaching on, on integration of the I call it the integration of fours. Um, also, four is a kind of important number. Anyway, you know, we have four elements, mm-hmm. we have four seasons, mm-hmm. uh, we have four directions, um, you know, uh, music, especially particularly rock music, pop culture music is, is, is organized in four, four beats per measure, four, four time code. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something about four that seems to be kind of important. Um, and so we'll do uh, kind of, I'll do a presentation on number one, existential, dukkha, body, and we'll do a practice. I'll do a presentation on number two, do a practice. So uh, to some degree, people who are listening right now, you know, some people are probably uh, coming at this understanding what I'm saying, but I'm sorry, some of it, I, you know, I tend to talk fast and, you know, we're talking about a lot of stuff in a short period of time. So by coming to the half day, you'll at least get a sense, I hope by the end of it, a very practical embodied sense of what it is that we're talking about because we'll go through each one so we have a four hour half day so give me an hour to really get each one so we can we can do i can do a teaching we can do a practice we can do a dialogue my my hope is that people will leave this uh, and this is a very well organized kind of system this is not um you know i feel very confident that people will really understand uh, where I'm coming from and really getting a sense and really a useful sense of, of mindfulness uh, as, as again, not necessarily mindfulness in the Four Noble Truths, but more that the, there, there are certain tasks 
Uh, and sometimes in life, my job is to, you know, if, if my dog dies uh, and I'm really, really sad and I have to deal with that, then I have to, that's an existential kind of mindfulness. How can I use mindfulness to be in kindness with myself and, and embrace that experience? And to other times I might be arguing with a friend or a family member about something and I'm very angry and upset. And, and maybe in that moment, I need a kind of more of a therapeutic mindfulness. Um, see what I mean? Or maybe I'm out in nature and I'm taking a hike and I'm sitting and I'm practicing and I'm kind of reflecting and maybe I sit down uh, next to a river or sitting on a rock. That would be a very kind of contemplative kind of mindfulness. It wouldn't be, uh, you know. So uh, I think that people will get a really good sense of where we're coming from. So I'm really actually, I usually, I've done this mindfulness in the Four Noble Truth many times, but I usually do it in a 90 minute class, which is not really sufficient. Um, yeah, so I don't I, think I, it would be. That's really a lot to cover in that small amount of time. So I'm grateful for the four hours too. And yeah, yeah the other thing, four. it's a lot to cover, but it's also, again, not that much because we're talking about, you know, we're not talking about esoteric. We're talking about really core, fundamental stuff here. We're talking about four foundations of mindfulness and four noble truths and the four Brahma Viharas and the four efforts. We're talking about really common, very, very common Buddhist teachings. Um, and the good news is, I believe once you get these kind of working for yourself, maybe that's all you need. Right. You know, you don't need to go down these kind of rabbit holes around emptiness and not self or 12 links of dependent origination or some of these other teachings that can be very intellectually stimulating. This is a very pragmatic, you know, useful practice that mm -hmm. you can, you can, you can like, put to work like immediately immediately right right and to me that's what mindfulness is about it's about immediacy mm -hmm. what's going on right now and you've probably noticed you've been practicing a little while there's always a lot going on right now right exactly and you know, i was sitting in the woods for a week and i'm sitting in a chair in the middle of the woods in northern new mexico with seemingly nothing to do and fucking lot going on man yeah. like, you know a lot going on in my mind a lot going on in nature it's like you know so it's uh you know it, it's good to be able to i also find that when people get when people start to integrate their meditation practice with dharma teachings uh and see that they're not that they're actually they're, they're meant to be integrated they're not there's not like I, I sit on a cushion and then i read a book uh which is how a lot of people end up. And I think a lot of people find that to be frustrating, irritating. They get to the point where they're like, well, I'm reading this stuff and then I'm sitting, but I don't see the interplay between the two. And I think when people see the interplay between the two, the study and the practice of the Dharma becomes very exciting. Well, and the real way that we can implement those, all of that into interactions with others and what we're, what's happening in our outward life with our job, our family, all of that. It's like, that's when the Dharma is alive in us, when we can see that and actually put it into practice. So I'm excited about that aspect of it. And just, I mean, I think I know conceptually that all of it's interrelated, but even just you talking about the fact that those first things are all interrelated on those lists of four is like blowing my mind a little bit. It is, <laughs> in right? A good way, like, in a good you know, way. <laughs> people have been staring at this stuff for years, but it's, um, yeah, it's just, it is hard. And also too, like a lot of people would say this, it's like, um, first of all, uh, Buddhism, the religion of Buddhism has largely and mostly ignored the teachings of the Pali Canon. Uh, and I don't mean that to be negative or to be mm -hmm. blameworthy. They just didn't have it. It's like, you know, when Bodhidharma went to China and brought Zen Buddhism or whatever, it's not like he had a fucking copy of the Pali Canon under his arm. Right. They just didn't know. Yeah. It wasn't really until modern scholarship, really within the last, I would say, 150, maybe 200 years, people have been looking at this text. So we've really mm -hmm. only begun to scratch the surface. Uh, as to what's actually contained the messages, the theories, the psychology, you know, uh, totally exciting. Yeah. Uh, so we're just barely scratching the surface on it. And, and, and now's a good time for it because mindfulness is everywhere. Uh, there's a lot of different um, ways to look at it. And also to say too, one of the, the criticisms that I get from time to time is I'm, you know, I'm not 
at all wanting to come across as being anti-Buddhist or anti some of these teachings or other traditions. I, I'm, I consider myself a very good friend to Buddhism. Buddhism mm -hmm. is my good friend. Mm -hmm. And like some of my good friends in life, some of my best friends in life, we don't agree on everything. Right. You know, we don't see eye to eye on everything. We maybe we haven't have some strong contention. And I think that's healthy and that's natural and that's important. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to uh, agree with it all. But I, I'm, I'm not trying to be dismissive of it or try to be judgmental of it. I just think it's totally fascinating mm -hmm. that um, that this happens to be the case. Uh, that and, and you know, and the other thing that's also really good, I think, about mindfulness-based ethical living and kind of the way I present this stuff is it's not going to be really in conflict with any other Buddhist thought or any other. Is it going to be a, another? It's going to be a different lens, but. Um, not going to change a whole lot, mm -hmm. but I, I think for people who are who are more secular minded like myself and also having an addiction background um, is having to be very, very clear and very realistic about what kind of benefits we can expect out of a practice like this mm -hmm. and what kind of things might actually be kind of impossible. Yeah. And if you go into and I and I've been there and I've done that, and this is, again, why I'm so passionate about this is that. I spent years of my life trying to achieve things in my practice, do things in my practice that actually turned out to, to be impossible. And if you've ever tried to do something that was impossible and find out that you were unable to do it, that's very frustrating. It's very disappointing. And you kind of just feel like a loser sometimes, you know, you're like, you're like, okay, now Dharma practice is just another thing that I suck at. Right. You know, uh, and, and if I can help, if people who struggle with that, mm -hmm. uh, who have that kind of feeling, which I think is common, uh, if I can help break that or help them reframe their practice in a way, so they're like, oh, they're, they're aware of the limitations. And they're also aware of the possibilities, because yeah. I think what happens is people think certain things are possible that aren't. Mm -hmm. And they think they're limited in certain ways in which they're not. So, you know, part of it is just having a, you know, realistic view. It's like a 12 year old kid who wants to fly. It's like, kid, you're not, you know, you could be out in the field trying all day long. It's like, dude, you're never going to fly. Right. Stop trying. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so a lot of times we, 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 and this is very true in life. A lot of times we find ourselves trying to do things that are just not going to happen like just overly aspirational in what we think the outcome could be totally like yeah. a lot of it is like you know people who think they're going to get sober by themselves mm, like, yeah you, you know you're probably you know you're more you know that's probably more likely than flying but uh <laughs> you know and so in, in part of it too i think that to bring people together a bit more is um is that we we, we need other people to this is not a uh self-help thing dharma is not self-help dharma uh, is not something that most of us are going to be able to do alone. Mm -hmm. We need teachers, we need friends, we need fellow companions on the path. And, and, and as you know this, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you guys are doing what you're doing because you're down in, uh, you guys are based out of Louisiana, is that correct? Mississippi, Louisiana, yeah. Yeah, not exactly the, the Mecca of Western Dharma, not exactly the Bay Area, right? Right, right. So I, I feel a lot of affinity and feel a lot of generosity too. And I, you know, I, I started centers in nashville so i mm -hmm. i really like to bring the dharma to underserved places because you know people don't realize it but there's not just not you know like like 95 percent of cities or towns in america don't have a local dharma center right. and if they do it's probably you know it's probably an odd kind of religious-y kind of experience so this is like like again when i say we're just beginning to scratch the surface i totally mean that wholeheartedly like this you know, and most of us find out that we're just a homeschooler. You know, we, 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 you know, and luckily we, we, you know, we read some books, we, we watch some YouTube stuff. We, we listen to podcasts, which I think, I think the, one of the best ways to, but then again, there's just so many podcasts, which, which podcasts one do you, you pick? Right. You know, exactly. and, and you, this teacher says this, and this teacher says that even within the Theravada insight tradition, which I'm from, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you could take 10 different teachers from that tradition and they're all going to teach in different kinds of ways. So one of the things that makes that hard is yes, yes, it's accessible. Yes, there's lots of talks. There's lots of things to listen to. But who do you listen to? Yeah. Who do you trust? Yeah. Uh, and it's not that some people are trustworthy and some people aren't trustworthy. It's just that some people are a fit for you. Right. 
and some people are not a fit for you. And trying to find the right teacher or the right perspective that's a fit for you is really actually hard. Mm. I find that, you know, it's very kind of confusing and overwhelming if you're skipping around and not sticking within a certain tradition or with a certain teacher. So I always kind of recommend to people like find someone that you do relate to and then practice what they're saying at least for, you know, six months to a year to totally. see if you can pick up what they're putting down kind of thing. And that's a great, that's a really good suggestion. Because it can be so overwhelming that you've listened to all these little snippets here and there and then you a year has passed and you're nowhere closer than you were when the year started so yeah yeah one thing that i learned years ago and actually Stephen bassler turned me on to it was like with this whole practice you really have to learn how to follow and trust your own nose mm. you know you find a teacher that you like well read their books listen to all their talks stick with them for a while like you just said you know and then and, and take that as far as it will take you and then keep going but it, it is it's really um it's really hard, actually. Yeah, yeah. And I always Especially... tell most people, like, in these interviews, like, I'm not for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I'm probably not for most. <laughs> you know, you know, so, I mean, I, I, but but the, the thing about it is usually people that end up working with me, finding me, they, you know, they, they usually end up, we usually end up having long-term relationships because, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's kind of what I'm mostly interested in anyway. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not interested in becoming a famous, popular Buddhist teacher. I just want to be popular and famous enough to fucking fill my programs and feed my kids and pay my mortgage. Right, know? right. Do all the things we have to do. So trying to find the appropriate level of popularity so I don't have to. Because, you know, that, that's one thing that makes my work hard is that I don't, you know, I do retreats a certain place. Like if I teach at Viacitos or Southern Dharma, if I teach at an established Dharma center, it's great because I just go and teach and they do the registration and those things fill up. But when I do my own programs, which I'd actually prefer to do, mm -hmm. like just mindfulness-based ethical living, like I, you know, I don't have the support of an organization or a monastery or so mm -hmm. I'm just kind of like having to do it basically from my office here, which is ground zero, using my list and social media and just, just trying to get the word out. And it's hard to get the word out too. Cause you know, even though everybody's on their phones all the time, there's, there's so much stuff. Yeah. I mean, how many emails a day does everybody get? It's, it's right. really, really hard. So um, that's part of the dukkha of what I do. Yeah. Well, going back to the fact that we're in the South, I mean, I, we love Southern Dharma too, and um, they have such a beautiful center. So I'm glad that you're tied in there. Um, we, of course, would love to host you in this area at some point uh, in person. Yeah. You have quite a big um, population of people in Nashville, I know, that that love you. And someone from Jackson, Mississippi said, oh, my gosh, tell me about the Dave Smith thing. I love him. Yeah, that's so, awesome. Just so you know, we might have a small um, yeah, I've population to, here, but we're name? mighty. I've talked to Justin, I think. Yeah. Uh, he, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm happy to, I think, you know, it, it's always a lot of work and back and forth to figure this out, but I, I don't, I don't see why, uh, I mean, I'd be happy to come do a five or a seven day retreat or, you know, for me yeah. to fly all the way down there and to travel, it's probably best to do something longer. Longer. Right. Uh, but if you guys, you know, if you guys have the bandwidth to find the place and get mm -hmm. the food and set yeah, all that stuff up, then all that. I don't think that would be very hard to set that up. Actually, we could probably yeah, do that would be great. Like, 2024 2025 for sure yeah yeah um and you know that's the great thing about you know the way that we kind of pop up different places is really yeah. trying to serve different sanghas and we don't really have a center so to speak so you, what do you just look. rent it you do that yeah so i i applaud that i've done it many times i do it mm -hmm. all the time it's a it's a lot of work you got to find a place you got to get the dates you got to find the food you got to get a contract you got to get insurance you got to do the registration it's yeah so it's, it's, it's really really you know it's it's not easy yeah we call ourselves a traveling sangha that's and good. each you know i like um, the pop-up sangha too that's good yeah we have a trailer we pull that got all the cushions and bootify the space is what i tell people so that's awesome <laughs> yeah i'm sure we can figure something out that doesn't sound like that would be too hard yeah great well um i'm excited about this program that you're doing with us for this half day i feel like um when i read the title i was like yeah i already know about that and now i feel like wow i know nothing about that so yeah, sure. that's pretty exciting to have a fresh perspective and really see what you're talking about as far as um learning something with a new um 
way of looking at it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I appreciate that. Um, anything else you want to tell us that you're doing or promote? You have your own podcast, right? I do have a podcast, Dave Smith Dharma. You can get it on Spotify, iTunes. The one thing I would always try to just say is, 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 is I try to get good outreach. So if you want to find out more about what I do, I just actually reformatted it. My website's really easy to navigate and it just, it, there's no clunkiness on it. It's all clean. My website is davesmithdharma.com. Mm -hmm. I have online classes you can sign up for. I have a mentoring program you can sign up for. I have my retreat dates. You can see most of those there. You can email me off my contact page because I'm not that well known. If you email me, there's a really, really like a 90% chance I'll email you back. Mm -hmm. It might take me a little while, but I try to respond to all the requests that I get. I don't actually get that many. Yeah. Um, so if you and, and the best thing to do really would be to go to my website, davesmithdharma.com and just sign up for my newsletter. Right. Uh, just to know, I don't, we, you know, we don't, we don't send out that many. Mm -hmm. uh, I probably send maybe eight or 10 emails a year. Mm -hmm. You know, I know, I know how it is. Sometimes you sign up for a newsletter and then you get an email from them every day. You're like, right. oh, you know, every we week. don't do any of that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you don't get that. We don't do that many, but it's usually just letting you know about these programs and where to register. So, so if you like what I do and you want to just uh, stay alert of what I'm up to. I don't do a lot on social media anymore. I don't have the time or the bandwidth and I think Facebook sucks and yeah. you know, I'm on Instagram uh, as little as possible. And mm -hmm. uh, so, so the, the best thing to do is if you really want to stay connected is to just get on my newsletter and just keep an eye out. Um, and anything that I do that's of, of any substance for the most part will be in the newsletter or the website. Okay. Um, let me ask you one other question about this half day. Do you feel like it is beginner friendly? Oh, totally. Okay. In fact, it might be more beginner friendly than advanced friendly because people who've been doing this for a while are going to have a lot of unlearning to deal with because, and just to be clear, I'm going to be presenting ideas that are mostly going to be out of line are going to be kind of not what you've been thinking or hearing so so the beginners probably it'd be big be, beginner for the beginners that get beginners luck because um they don't have any um they're not going to be having this kind of internal conflict of being like dave's saying this but this is what i've heard right and, right and, uh, that can be a bit um but then the good thing is we'll practice it you can you, you can see for yourself if you don't you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not trying to say that I have the right version or the only version or the best version. I'm just saying there are other versions. There are different ways to look at these practices, the different ways to look at these teachings. And I think the Buddha would applaud that. Mm -hmm. um, I think that he was clear about that. So um, also, too, let's just be clear, you know, largely Buddhism has been reserved to a monastic training. You know, there's really no there's really never really been a lay Buddhist Sangha, really. Mm -hmm. In fact, even to call it a Sangha is a bit awkward because Sangha literally means monastics. You know, the Sangha is the group of monks and nuns practicing the Dharma. So right. to, to even say that we have a Sangha is kind of an inaccurate statement. Right. Um, so, um, you know, because of that, uh, I think that it even more puts us in the position to have to rethink some of these ideas because uh you know i uh, i'm not a monk i deal with money i deal with sexuality i deal with society i deal with the world i deal with technology i deal with banks i deal with passwords i deal I deal with children i deal with my children's friends and their teachers i mean i'm totally engaged mm -hmm. fully engaged with the secular world yeah uh, which which gives rise to what, what i like to call secular dukkha you know we we deal with a lot of dukkha that the monastics don't deal with hey maybe they're onto something right? right maybe there's a reason why that but i think that if we're going to if we really want the dharma to take root and we want the dharma to thrive and to be practical and to be applicable in the world of modernity uh we we there's a lot of things that we need to probably rethink mm -hmm. there's probably a lot of things that we need to consider be open to uh, and and a lot of it we're probably going to have to sort of invent mm -hmm. yeah um so i'm going to ask you one last question it's not sure. necessarily um i mean it is related but just a kind of a pop-up question what's been your happiest memory for the past year in the past year oh boy that's a tough one <laughs> i have to say probably i actually struggle a bit with happiness mm. um i don't love the word so much um you know i i think that um you know like uh my goal is to not my, my i'm more interested in things that are meaningful 
mm-hmm. which is another way to correlate happiness. Um, in the last year, God, there's been so many. Um, so many. Um, yeah, so hard to, it's a great question. You know, I, I, I have so many to pull from, but I can't specifically think of one in particular. Okay. Um, you know, I think that um, the, 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 probably not so much in the last year, but the, really, I think that the, the one thing that's been interesting to me is, is being, you know, almost 50 years old and practicing for 30 years and sober for 20 years. Um, most of my life, I would say probably 80% of it, I never thought I would be a family man. Mm. Um, I was always mostly single, lived alone, didn't want kids or family. And so uh, now I have two, I have two boys, I have a wife, uh, my parents live by, I've, I'm sort of this middle generation. I have, I have um, very old parents and very, very young kids. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everybody needs something from me all the time. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, I think that that's been the most, the happiest is that it's, it, as I feel, um, yeah, I feel happy that, that I'm, I find myself doing things I never thought I would do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah. So in, in being able to, the thing that really makes me happy is, um, like, uh, being able to be a dharma teacher you know this is my only job i don't have like a psychotherapy practice or i don't right. do what i do uh, and the fact that i'm able to 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 be a dharma teacher to do, do a lot of what i do for donna mm-hmm. uh, to be able to you know pay a mortgage and a car payment and health insurance and 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 and, and, and be able to do that um and it's hard it's not it's not a snip it's challenging and it, it's confusing and it's, it's probably uh, probably the boatload of my dukkha uh, which is probably true for most of us, but I really um, I feel happy that I'm that I'm able to do it in a way that I feel like uh, some integrity around that, um, and uh, so I'm always um, the thing that makes me most happy is always I'm always I feel like I always have this very scared to me that my relationship with the Dharma is very scary because I'm being asked to trust something, to have faith in something that I'm actually never going to completely understand. And actually, at the end of the day, there's really no guarantees. Right. So it's very risky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know that's a long answer to a short question. I don't even think I answered your question. But... <laughs> I think you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I More than that... one answer, but that's good. Yeah. How old are your kids? Four and ten. Wow. Yeah, they're little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ten-year-old is really quite easy. He's a, mm-hmm. he's a great kid. He, he's... He's mostly fun, actually. The yeah. four-year-old's coming out of the coming out. He's going to be five soon. He's he's great. We love him to death, but he's kind of unreasonable and demanding, and you know, wild. Uh, you know, he's a pain in the ass. You know what I mean? <laughs> Most of the time, he's a pain in the ass, and we love him to death. But it's right. like, you know, it's uh, so he's um, you know, once he gets five, six, six is usually when things turn around. So we're 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 still in it, but he's uh. Yeah, he's just, you know, he's, he's downstairs right now, you know, probably yeah. as soon as I get down to the bottom of the stairs, he's going to have some request that's yeah. going to be completely unreasonable, like a bowl of ice cream or, you know, <laughs> want to go to Walmart or whatever, whatever, whatever scheme he's cooking up right now is, you know. Yeah. He doesn't like to hear no. Right. Which is funny, too, when you think about Duca, right? Like, you know, when we don't get what we want, that's Duca. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you. I haven't taught him one ounce of Buddhist teachings, but when that four-year-old kid does not get what he wants, man, does he react? Yeah. So like having little kids, man, if you really want to see the Four Noble Truths in action. Yeah. Not getting what he wants. He's reacting. He's clinging. He's craving. He's tantruming. It's just like, it's like, yep. The Buddha was totally right about that. Right. Built in. I didn't teach him any of that. built in that's right the built in well thank you so much for taking this time with me i've really enjoyed talking to you and i can't wait to do this half day with you on july 22nd so um yeah i will see you then and i'll go ahead and you know try to let everyone know about your other offerings as well so cool that'd be great i appreciate that yeah nice meeting you you too thank you
We hope you go to floweringlotusmeditation.org to sign up. You can sign up at the scholarship rate, which is absolutely free, or support Flowering Lotus by signing up for the $25, $50, or $75 rate. Help us to continue to offer online and in-person opportunities for learning the Dharma and meditation. hope you'll join us for Dave Smith and his workshop, Mindfulness and the Four Noble Truths, which is July 22nd. It's a Saturday morning, and when you sign up, you'll be able to receive a copy of the recording of this class. So if you're unable to join us in person, still sign up. That way you'll receive the recording as soon as the class is finished. Hope to see you there.